Today we begin a new sermon series on a truly amazing book in the New Testament. The book is titled The Letter to the Hebrews, or we can simply just call it Hebrews. It was written by some unknown church leader, most likely someone closely related to Paul or one of the other apostles. So throughout this sermon series, I'm going to refer to him as the writer to the Hebrews. Who were the Hebrews? Well, they were a church or a group of churches who were formerly Jewish people, but now they had come to embrace Jesus as God's promised Messiah. They were likely residing in Rome. Now, try to imagine how difficult it would be to be a Christian in those early days of the Roman Empire, especially Christians who used to be Jewish, ostracized now by their own family members and ridiculed and persecuted by their Roman neighbors. The temptation to give up and to go back was quite strong. The writer had a pastoral relationship with this congregation, and so this whole letter reads more like a written sermon. Word had gotten back to the pastor that some in the congregation were slipping from Christ and turning back to their old way of doing things. And so with great love and care, the writer to the Hebrews exhorts his people to see just how foolish that is. So throughout this letter, he, he focuses, focuses their eyes up to Christ. This sermon series is titled Jesus Christ Above All Things. It's the writer's belief that all of our turning back and giving up would evaporate if we could just put, put our eyes on Jesus. And it's true, we all need help focusing on Jesus Christ. And our passage this morning will do just that. These words we're about to read are spectacular. I hope you enjoy them. Are you ready? Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much superior to angels, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hand. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will never end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent 
out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, and we get to it, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is truly an amazing word to us. Help us to, um, to ascertain the many facets of this jewel in Scripture. By your Spirit, may we understand more fully, um, and may we long to implant into our lives the truth that is here. May we lift our eyes to heaven and magnify Jesus in everything we pray. Amen. I was in my early 20s, I think maybe it was my first year out of college, and I, I took a trip, it was like the winter time, I took a trip to the Gulf Coast of Florida to Clearwater, beautiful place. Oh, did I mention I, I went with my mother? <laughs> That's a story for another day. <clears throat> one day I bought one of those air mattress floats and I walked out into knee deep water and I just laid there. The water was calm. I closed my eyes, enjoying the warm rays of the sun. I listened to the hush of the waves as they gently crashed on the shore and I listened to kids at play and I fell asleep. I don't know how much time went by, 10 minutes, 20, maybe 30. And then to my surprise, I wake up and I realize, yes, I had drifted far from shore. When you can no longer hear the kids playing on the beach and if you yelled and no one could hear your voice, then fear tends to grip you. With my heart racing, I paddled and paddled and paddled my way back to the shore. When I got there, I found myself calm and collected at peace and very thankful. The lesson I learned, well, first, don't fall asleep on an air mattress in the open ocean. And two, if you do, make sure you are anchored to something lest you drift away. Now, if you're a Christian, one of the biggest problems you and I face isn't that we don't know Christ, and it isn't that we haven't placed our trust in him, it's that we tend to drift. The tide of our culture, combined with the waves of our own desires, means that in our natural state, we are drifting. And weeks or months or perhaps years later, we wake and we find that we've drifted away from Christ and the life that he has for us. The writer to the Hebrews knows that this is an ongoing life in the church, so he cautions them and us. In the, in the first verse of chapter 2, he says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. The original audience was comprised of Jewish converts to Christ, and as I said earlier, some in the church were being tempted to go, go back to their lives before Christ, to anchor their life, listen, on lesser things. Good things, for sure, like temple worship and the law of Moses, the words of the prophets. Good things. But now that Jesus has come, 
lesser thing. We too, after coming to Christ, can fix ourselves to lesser things. Some of them are even good things like family or career or fitness. We can make lesser things to be supreme in our lives. And so from the very beginning of this letter, the writer wants us to see that Jesus is supreme over all things. And so our lives must be anchored, must not be anchored to any lesser thing, for if we do, we will drift away. As our passage says, we have received such a great salvation, so let us not neglect it. The call of Christ is to come to him, to anchor our lives upon him. The call of Christ is to have our dreams and our lives shaped by him, to trust him not just in the great, big, great details of our struggles, but even the daily mundane things of life, lest we drift. The big idea this morning is this, because Christ is supreme over all things, we must anchor our lives to him. As we dissect our passage, we're gonna see that the writer draws our attention to three ways that Jesus is supreme over all things. And if you've been a Christian for a while, you will notice that these three, three things are what Christian scholars identify as the threefold office of Jesus Christ, prophet, priest, and king. Today we might just say those are the three hats Jesus wears. And so we'll spend our time under these three headings. Jesus is God's supreme prophet, priest, and king. What the writer wants us to see is that Jesus, because Jesus is supreme in these three office, offices, we have such a great salvation that we must not neglect. Now, before we get too far down the road, let's define the word supreme. Uh, the word supreme has kind of become watered down in our vernacular, right? If you ask a guy what he thinks of when he hears the word supreme, what does he think of? Pizza. So let's recapture the meaning of the word supreme. What does it mean? Well, the word supreme is an adjective of comparison. It says that an item you're talking about is the absolute highest in rank, position, or authority. With regards to degree or quality or importance, there is none higher, right? There's nothing above supreme. The adjective supreme also conveys the idea of finality. If you've recognized something as supreme, then your search is over. Now, the first point. Because Jesus is the supreme prophet of God, we must anchor our lives to him. Ever been to one of those wax museums? They're pretty amazing, right? One thing I notice is everybody appears to be much shorter than I thought them to be. Um, but the imprint of many famous persons, they just get carved out in colorful wax. And even up front, these wax figures look quite real. But as close to lifelike as they can get, a wax figure is still just a pile of wax. You can't talk to it, you can't relate to it. That's kind of what the writer here is getting at. At many times and in many ways, the prophets, they painted this picture of God almost in 3D, and yet the picture is somewhat of a wax figure. Jesus, though, is divine. He is the exact imprint of the Father's nature. That's what he's writing here. And, and so he's the, the radiance of the glory of God lived on earth. In the Old Testament, before Jesus arrived, God had many prophets, angels too, who spoke God's word to God's people. In the past, God spoke through prophets. Now he has spoken to us once and for all 
through the supreme prophet, Jesus Christ. Listen again in amazement to what the writer of the Hebrews says in the opening verses. They're really spectacular. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. A good thing. But in these last days, we're in the last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And, if that isn't enough, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Wow. The writer is saying that the old way of God relating to his people is over. It is done. In many ways, long ago, God spoke through his prophets, but now it's over. Why? Because in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. None of the prophets before were God's divine son. That's a son with a capital S. The writer wants the churches to whom he is writing to consider that Jesus is God's supreme word. No angels, no prophet compares. That is why the writer quotes a number of Old Testament verses. I won't go into them, but he's, he's making that point. Verse 5, for which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I begotten you? Uh, the answer is none. <laughs> uh, angels were considered greater than the prophets. Mankind is made just a little bit lower than the angels. And they gave the messages to the prophets. The writer is saying no one that has spoken God's word in the past comes close to comparing to Jesus. He's the only son. He's the divine son. And as the writer in verse 2 says, through whom also he created the world. <laughs> He's building a great case for the supremacy of Jesus. Think about it. Jesus created all things, stars, mountains, elephants, and yes, even angels and prophets. Jesus, the Son, with the Father and the Holy Spirit, created them all. Not only is Jesus the divine Son who created it all, but he also continues to sustain it all. Verse 3, and he upholds the universe. How? By the word of his power. Amazing. Jesus, that man who walked on earth for 33 years and died on the cross, he, he's the final word of God that he's spoken into this world. The argument being made is this. Stop looking for some other word in this world to anchor your life upon. The original audience was tempted to look back to the words of Moses, to go back to the temple sacrificial system. Today in America, that's really not much of our problem, is it? We're not tempted to go back to those old ways of the Old Testament. Most of us didn't come to Christ through Old Testament Judaism. Now, I think the, the big religion in America, amongst others, could be titled the religion of individual self-fulfillment. It begins in elementary school when teachers tell kids, you can be anything you want to be. Sounds innocuous, but it's detrimental to their souls. Then in high school, we're told, don't let anyone tell you you need to change. And later in our 20s and 30s, we're told, don't let anything or anybody spoil your dream. The prophets of our age whisper sweet nothings into our ears. We like it. Especially when you start believing, I can have Jesus and be anything I want to be. I don't need to change a bit. He loves me after all. 
and nothing can spoil my dreams. And the drifting began. So the writer wants us to see how Jesus is supreme over every prophet, every voice on earth. The logic is, therefore, since Jesus is supreme over all things, the search for meaning and purpose and happiness, it's over. Stop looking. Attach your life to Christ, not just his words, but attach yourself to him. What the writer hopes that we come to understand is that Jesus isn't just a messenger. He is the message. You totally miss Jesus if you think he came and spoke words to you like, come and live a moral life. No, Jesus' invitation is not for you to receive information, but rather an eternal relation. Jesus never said, come to my teaching. No, he said and continues to say, come to me. He knows that a true relationship with him would save you. And think about it, right? None of the early prophets ever said words like, come to me, <laughs> find salvation in me, I'm your prophet, I'm Isaiah. No, what do they do? They always pointed to God. Return to God, look to God, find salvation waiting for you in God, is what they would say. But not so Jesus. Jesus, Jesus is the supreme prophet. What he says is insanity, were it not true. A couple of examples from John's gospel. Jesus said, and this is lunacy if it's not true. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And a little further down in John's gospel, he says, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Those are prophetic words, are they not? Jesus is the supreme prophet because Jesus is God. He is the word of God himself in the flesh. The writer wants us to cherish this truth so that we may behold his glory and listen to Christ lest we drift away. How does this challenge? How does it invigorate this morning? So the first office of Jesus is that he is our supreme prophet. Next, because Jesus is the supreme priest of God, we must anchor our lives to him. You know, as great as it is to be able to listen to God and to experience his glory through Jesus the prophet, we could never be accepted by God and draw near to his presence if Jesus were not the supreme and perfect priest. And so the writer to the Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the one who makes perfect atonement for our sins. He writes in verse 3 of chapter 1, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, as we look through this book of Hebrews in the weeks ahead, we're going to see that this theme of Jesus being the perfect high priest repeats um, regularly. See, Jesus fulfills this office of priest because he offers the one true sacrifice that takes away our sin. Isn't this what, what the angel told Joseph at Jesus' birth? You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now, what we saw in the Old Testament priesthood is that the priest continually, day after day, entered into the temple and repeatedly offered sacrifice after sacrifice for their sins, and then they were able to offer sacrifice for the people. Understand this, though, that God truly used that priestly service to maintain his relationship with his people. For how is it that sinful people can be in a relationship with a holy and pure God if not by some sacrifice? 
But what we see is that Jesus is far greater than any priest before. He is the supreme high priest. And he's not only the priest who offers up the sacrifice, he is himself the sacrifice. The divine man and priest Jesus offers up the divine man and sacrifice Jesus. And the beauty of this for you, and the reason why this is such a great salvation that we must not ignore, is that this sacrifice is done. It's once and for all. This is a hard thing I know for many non-Christians and even many Christians will struggle with this. Has God really saved me to the uttermost, forgiven all my sins, past, present, and future? Has Christ truly done and finished the work of forgiveness once and for all? A good question to ask. Let me ask you this though. In all of the descriptions in the Old Testament that you read for the tabernacle and then the temple, did you ever read of a chair in there? No, of course not. The priest's work was never done. Therefore, they could never sit down. But not so Jesus, our supreme priest. His work is finished, and he's now seated at the right hand of the Father. That's what we read in verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is the supreme high priest because God, uh, of God because when he offered his once and for all sacrifice for our sin, he sat down. This has marvelous implications for those of us who believe. Listen, Christian, Jesus will never ever again rise again to offer himself as a sacrifice for your sin. He died for those sins once and for all. Though you and I continue to sin every day, Jesus' sacrifice is complete. He has done it. He is now seated in glory next to the Father. And he continues to intercede from his seat on our behalf as the supreme high priest. We see this in chapter 4, that Jesus is seated on a throne, a throne of grace. And when we sin, we pray to him, our high priest, one who's been tempted in every way, yet without sin. And when we do that, we receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. My friends, no Old Testament priest even comes close. Jesus is the supreme prophet of God. He is the supreme priest of God. Now for Jesus, the king. Because Jesus is the supreme king of God's kingdom, we must anchor our lives to him. Picture living in a medieval kingdom and not so much the Game of Thrones kind of thing. Um, imagine the king is a good king who cares for his subjects. He rules over the land as far as the eye can see, and he, he fights against foreign kingdoms, and therefore he protects you and your family quite well. And his laws are good and just and fair. And therefore the people under his reign grow and they thrive. Think about it. What a wonderful life to live under the reign of a good king. How much more so living with Christ as a king over our lives? Our passage shows us that Jesus is the true king. He is the Lord of all. And therefore, we must pledge allegiance to him. He alone rules the kingdom, and he alone can win our battle. The writer to the Hebrews makes this clear to us in verses 2 and 3. God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he created the world. 
Isn't it true if you're the one who made something and you're the one for whom that something has been made, then you are its rightful Lord? Verse 8 tells us that the Son has been given a throne that is forever and ever. And amazingly, in verse 3, we read that the true King Jesus upholds the universe by the power of his word. Just as the son of the medieval king is the heir and owner of all the land, so too Christ, the eternal son, is the heir and the owner of all God's kingdom, including the universe. Remember when Jesus was put on trial before Pontius Pilate? Pilate asked him if, if he was the king of the Jews. Remember, Jesus answered, my, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, Jesus wasn't saying that my kingdom doesn't extend into this world, no, but rather that my kingdom is unlike any other on this earth. Whereas earthly kingdoms are ruled by fallen human beings, the kingdom of heaven is ruled by the perfect, holy, divine Son. What a comfort. Jesus is the supreme king, not just the king of queens, Staten Island, for that matter. Now, most of the world does not see this reality and we can kind of understand. They see all the hardship and the pain and the suffering and the death. And they conclude there must not be anyone on a throne in heaven. I get it. But they just don't know that Jesus left his throne 2,000 years ago and came down. He entered into this broken, sinful, sorrowful world. And he went to the cross to win the victory over sin and death and sorrow and shame. Victory is certain. It's done. But until the time is right when Jesus returns to establish his perfect eternal kingdom. Until then, the world will look as if he's not on his throne. But for us who are being saved, we know that Jesus is in control of all things, even the hardship and evil against us. All things he works out for our good, for his glory. Do you believe that? After all we just read, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so the question before us all, Christian and non-Christian alike, is this. Is Jesus seated on the throne of your life? Or are you still trying to rule and reign over the circumstances of your life for your own glory? The wisest thing you can ever do in life is to bow your knee and kiss the king. Yield to him so that the good and gracious King Jesus, who upholds the universe by the word of his power, can rule your life in goodness and glory. Do you agree? <laughs> this morning, the writer of the Hebrews has lifted our eyes to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the supreme prophet, priest, and king. Therefore, we must anchor our lives to him, lest we drift. Very simple message. May we embrace that. Our final application comes from his words in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. Did you parse that statement? We must pay much closer attention. Listen, the more, listen, the more we mature as Christians, Christians, the farther along in this journey with Christ that we go, the more closer attention we must pay, not less. And it's true, the longer you walk with Christ, the more you've come to see how foolish it is not to anchor our souls to him, 
lest we drift. So may we see Christ more clearly this morning. May we see him as the supreme prophet who brings us divine and final words. And therefore, let us listen to him and come to him. May we see him as the supreme priest who gave us his life and continues to intercede for us. And therefore, let us entrust our salvation to him alone and let us rest in his grace. And may we see that Jesus is our supreme king who rules in perfect justice and grace. And therefore, let us bow our knee and kiss the king and bid him to rule and to reign over us for our good and his glory. May we anchor ourselves to him and him alone. Father in heaven, these words you have given us ring true. It's a very simple message. Your son is supreme over all things, and he's come so that we can attach our lives to him, so that all that is in him is now ours. We delight in that. We know we struggle. We confess we are tempted to drift away. May you, by your Holy Spirit, by this grace that you give us, may you allow us to pay much closer attention to this salvation and to our Savior, we pray. Amen.